Can't go wrong with that for sure. Well, I will have to apologize for a slip of the memory yesterday. I I blame poor Nebuchadnezzar on trying to kill Daniel. And it wasn't actually Neb at all. It was uh, Darius the Mede. It was after Nebuchadnezzar had died and Belteshazzar was gone and Babylon had fallen. But sometimes my memory does that, or my lack of memory. <laughs> so when you... I didn't do it uh, with any malicious forethought. Just simply sometimes don't remember all the details, especially if I don't review it. So uh, I wasn't preaching false doctrine, or at least I wasn't trying to. Just got the name mixed up. But that happens, and I appreciate when I do something stupid like that, that somebody says, uh, wasn't that so-and-so? Oh, yeah, I guess it was. (laughs) But it happens. Let us go back for a moment to uh, Hebrews 11 here on this last day of unleavened bread. We've referred to this chapter a few times during this period of time, these seven days. But I want to skip down to Moses here and what Paul had to say about Moses. This being the last day of unleavened bread, and this this is uh, an example in season for us. Verse 23 says, By faith Moses, when he was born, was hid three months of his parents, because they saw he was a proper child, and they were not afraid of the king's commandment. Now this wasn't Moses' faith. This was his parents who were concerned about their child and were not afraid of the king's commandment and went against it. How much they knew about the true God is a question because even Moses didn't really remember his name, we find, and the Israelites certainly hadn't, and they wanted to know which God is this because there were many in Egypt, and they over 430 years had come to worship those same gods. By faith, Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. The story goes, of course, that he was rescued from his hiding place. And being an Israelite of Shem, and being adopted by a daughter of Ham, it was very obvious to everyone in the kingdom that uh, he was an Israelite or a Hebrew, and... uh, a black girl had taken him in and adopted him in the land of Ham. So it wasn't too hard for him to recognize as he grew up who he was from. Uh, I mean, color was such an obvious thing. But he came to the point where instead of staying in the courts of Pharaoh, he did something that got him run out of Egypt, uh, where he murdered the Egyptian, or the Mitzrayimite, and took that path instead of staying under Pharaoh's regime. Choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. He could have overlooked it when the uh, Mitzrayimite was afflicting the I mean, the uh, the Mitzrayimite was afflicting the Israelite, 
But instead, he rose up and killed him and buried him in the sand. And that became known. But in doing that, he was obviously departing from serving Pharaoh and being concerned about what was obviously his own people. So he made a choice there. Now, he could have overlooked that, gone on about his business, and remained very high in Pharaoh's and Ham's government, and enjoyed all the benefits of having the wealth and the power and the fame uh, in that government that was over all of Ham and also ruled over Israel. So it was a choice he simply made. I will put my people ahead of everything that I've been given here in this kingdom. So he put away wealth, fame, fortune, and all of that in order to suffer. Because he must have known when he did kill that man that it was a thing that would not go unnoticed. And if you read the account, he looked both ways to see if any man was looking. So he, he knew the implications of what he was about to do and went ahead and did it anyway and made that choice. Now, to his knowledge, no one saw it because he had looked both ways. But then the next day, when he got after a couple of Hebrews, they said, oh, you're going to kill us like you did the Egyptian. And then he knew the cat was out of the bag. <laughs> So he fled and got out of there. <clears throat> and that's what he's talking about in verse 25. Esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Mitzrium, for he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. Now, this was written later. Uh, when Moses actually made that choice and fled... He did not understand what was ahead of him. He didn't understand Christ. He didn't know really what choice he was making, except he was putting his own people, his birthright people, ahead of the people of Ham and the government of Egypt. That much he knew. It was later on that he learned about the greater riches of Christ and the reward that could come his way if he would do so. And Christ explained that to him later, uh, before he even went out to save the people. So, by faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. I don't know how much inkling Moses might have had. Probably not much. But he had trust, he had faith, he had confidence in something there, that it would work out better in the long run if he served his people rather than Pharaoh. And he didn't understand the fullness of that until it was brought to him. And later on, they did understand, and it was faith then in God that they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land, which the Mitzriamites, as saying to do, were drowned. And then Jericho fell and they went into the promised land. Let's go back to Exodus 1. I want to pick up just a few highlights of this. Uh, 
And let's understand a couple things. Uh, when he had gone out into the desert, uh, he helped the girls that were trying to get water for their sheep and got water for them. And their father was grateful and thankful and took him in and later on gave him Zipporah, one of his daughters, as his wife. And he was content to dwell there. He stayed there 40 years. Verse 23 of chapter 2, it says, And it came to pass in the process of time that the king of Egypt died, and the children of Israel sighed by reason of the bondage, and they cried, and their cry came up to God by reason of the bondage. Now, they were crying out, and they didn't even know who they were crying to. But God was there, and he knew, and he knew who they were, even though they had lost track, really, of who they were. So he remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and looked upon them and held them in high regard because of the past. So then we hear, we know the story of Moses going out and seeing this bush that was not burning, and he thought he better check it out, and was told to take off his shoes, it was holy ground, and God appeared to him there, and he was afraid. But he was told in verse 7, I have seen the affliction of my people, and I have heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows, and I am come down to deliver them out of their hands. Now this was about 430 years after Jacob had gone down into Egypt, we know it's Mitzrayim, I say Egypt because it's here so often, but Egypt or Mitzrayim was a picture of sin. And throughout Scripture, when you come to that word, Egypt or Mitzrayim, it's referring to that kingdom as a type of sin for the whole world. Now that becomes important when we understand that the Passover and the Days of Unleavened Bread are about getting sin out of our lives just as they got out of that kingdom. So it became symbolic of sin, and we continue year by year to put sin out of our lives even as they came walking out of there. They didn't fly out. They didn't run out or drive out. They walked out. Walking takes some time. God gives us some time to get sin out, to put it away from us, because it is not easy to get rid of. Anyway, he questioned who he was in verse 11 of chapter 3, that I would go and bring forth the children out. Now, he had a memory there of growing up in that government, and he knew that that Pharaoh was dead, but another one, And perhaps he was not really recognizing here that he had been sent through that from a child on to help prepare and train him for what he was about to do. He was familiar with Pharaoh's setup. He was familiar with the government. He was familiar with all their customs. He knew all their gods. He had been taught to worship them as a boy. So he was familiar with everything that went on there. And God was using that as... Preparation. We started this out with, do we prepare? 
and I have wanted to show very clearly how much God prepares. Now, he knew this whole thing way back. He knew when Joseph was a little boy, and his dad used him as the favorite and made him a coat of many colors. And his brothers hated and resented him and sold him off to go where? Into Egypt. And then, through a series of miracles there, Joseph was put at the top of the government of Pharaoh. He went through a lot. He had his mind prepared. He was accused of something he didn't do. Went and sat in jail or in prison for seven years for something he did not do. And then he got favor. How often does someone in jail get favor of the leader of the country and they pull him out of jail and uh, bring him in and make him over everything in the nation? Has there been an American president that's done that with some jailbird? No. This had to have God's hand in it for this to happen the way it did. So Joseph's whole life, the years of famine and then the years of plenty and preparing everything ahead of time so that both the Egyptians and Israel and the lands around might even survive the famine that was coming. So it was all planned out way ahead of time. And do we think that God is asleep today when we are at the end of the age when all of these prophecies that he had written thousands of years ago are now coming to pass one episode at a time, and we see them gathering around us and happening. Now, if he was that careful in his preparations way back then to prepare Joseph to take them in, just Jacob and his family, 70 people, and then have them be millions of people 430 years later, and have it all planned out well in advance... God heard them crying out all that time, didn't he? That whole 430 years. When he didn't intervene, he had a plan. He had a specific time frame. He knew exactly what he was doing. Now, they would have probably thought, you should have sent us somebody sooner. You know, we're having trouble here. Now they're killing all our babies. And here was one that got saved out, and 40 years later, after he'd been out in the desert, well, 40 years in Pharaoh's court, and then 40 years in the desert, before he came back at age 80. And they'd been crying and being whipped and misused and abused all that time. They probably didn't think too much of it. I compare that with us thinking, well, it's going to be in 72 to 75. It's going to be in 82. It's going to be blah, blah, whatever. And we get tired and say, when is God ever, ever going to do something? He knows exactly what he's doing. Has it planned out very precisely? I suspect to the very day. He did here. 430 years to the day they came out after they had gone in. He worked all that out. It wasn't coincidence that it was the same day out of one out of 360. It had to be planned carefully, and everything leading up to it. Now, 
he had to explain to him what his name was. Chapter 3, verse 14. I am that I am. I am. I exist. That's a name of Christ that uh, people have trouble with. They don't believe that he really exists. He's a phantom, or he's a man who died, and all that kind of stuff, or that he's just a, a spook. But they don't believe that he is what he is, as explained and described in Revelation 1. So he told them to go gather the elders together in verse 16. Uh, said they would hearken to his voice, uh, and then they would ask to go out three days into the wilderness to sacrifice to the eternal. Now, that was a good thought in their minds. Here they were, day after day, making bricks and so on, and they get a three-day vacation. Hey, we'll go for that. Didn't understand the implications, but it sure sounded good to them. But God said he would smite Egypt, and they would go out, and they wouldn't go out empty. They'd have plenty of uh, jewelry and clothes and everything that... They could spoil the Egyptian job. They would have the riches that they had had. Moses was worried, though, in chapter 4. He said, They will not believe me, nor hearken to my voice, for they will say, The Eternal has not appeared to you. Do you think that there's any possibility that modern people, when God begins to deliver his remnant, would have the same attitude? Because he says 90% of them will say, ha ah, that's a joke. God hasn't shown that. God isn't doing that. What do you mean? Everybody knows Jerusalem's in the Middle East. That's the biggest authority in the world. You know that? Everybody knows. There's not a bigger authority than that one. You can believe what everybody does. But look at this. Could you have dreamed up this whole scenario and in any case that God would do all that he did with Isaac and then Jacob and then Joseph and then 430 years later with Moses? It's a story that's in here. How many people really believe it? I don't know. Anyway, say they, they're not going to believe me. So God said, what's that in your hand? He says, it's a rod. He says, throw it on the ground. It became a snake. He said, pick it up. <laughs> I've been around snakes a lot in my life, and I just never had the urge to pick up a live rattler. It just didn't appeal to me at all. Some people do it, but whatever. I, I don't think he probably thought highly of it. And he says, okay, here's a sign. This will happen. I think they'll believe that. Verse 6, the Lord said, Furthermore, put your hand into your bosom. And he put his hand into his bosom. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous as snow. Now there's a white Kleenex on that box. That's about the color of snow. Pretty white. And his hand came out Kleenex colored. And rotting. Leprosy rots the skin. Uh, the flesh falls off the bone. And you die a very, very horrible death with leprosy. And people were scared to death about leprosy. 
when suddenly there he had it. So, it shall come to pass, if they will not believe you, neither hearken to the voice of the first sign, that they will believe the voice of the latter sign. And it shall come to pass, if they will not believe also these two signs, neither hearken to your voice, that you shall take of the water of the river and pour it on the dry land, and the water which you take out of the river shall become blood upon the dry land. Here he was having trouble getting not the Pharaoh to believe. He was having trouble thinking that he could get Israel themselves to believe. And God said, all right, I'll give you these two signs, then I'll give you another one. Water will turn into blood. Well, Moses kind of avoided that and says, well, I don't speak very well. So we can make our excuses to God, can't we? And then God said, no excuses. I'll have Aaron speak for you. You tell Aaron what to say, and I'll tell you what to say. You tell Aaron what to say, and he'll speak for you. I wonder if at some point in this whole deal he regretted that. But nevertheless, God had an answer. He'll be your spokesman. And you shall take this rod, verse 17 of chapter 4, and you will do signs and wonders with it. Now, we're to be delivered here in the end time. And does God not say that he will cause Christ to do signs and wonders here as well? Do you believe it? Do you believe this story when you read it in Exodus? Everybody knows the Exodus story. They made movies about it. Do we believe all this stuff actually happened? And if so, then we ought to believe the other things that God writes that are going to happen, right? should be obvious. He wrote this as history. He wrote these that we're looking to as prophecy. says these things are going to happen again. Well, he not only says God's people are going to do signs and wonders, he also says the beast and false prophet are going to do great signs and wonders. What do we have as a basis to believe that? Signs and wonders right back here. They've happened before. Satan made a ball of fire there and killed Job's sheep. God made a ball of fire, ball of fire and sucked up the, uh, the wood and the barrels and the water and everything there when Elijah killed the 450 prophets of Baal. Elijah is an end-time uh, personality, according to Malachi 4 and Matthew and other places. Those things happened then. They're about to happen again. We better believe it. Do we have trouble believing it? Hmm? Probably we do. 90% of the church aren't going to believe it at all. 10% will. That's how bad it will be. Same problem back here. Well, they won't believe me. And besides that, I don't speak well, so they certainly won't believe a guy that stutters and stammers around. He said he would harden hardens, uh, Pharaoh's heart, and he wouldn't let them go. Anyway, chapter 5, Moses and Aaron went in and told Pharaoh that uh, God of Israel says, let my people go hold a feast in the wilderness. It was He was speaking of Passover in the days of unleavened bread, of course. That was the thing that was about to come up. 
So Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I don't know him, and I'm not going to let them go. And then he made life harder for the Israelites. Verse 7, they weren't to have straw anymore to make bricks. It would be harder to keep it together, but they had to make just as many bricks as they were making. And then they got beat and so on because they weren't. So life suddenly got tougher for them when they decided that they might listen to God. Did life get tougher for you in some ways when God first began to call you? You bet it did. It was exciting. It was new. It was wonderful to think, hey, I've, I found the truth finally. But then you ran into problems with people around you for the most part. Most people did. So, in some ways, life got tougher. Even their own mates began to persecute them for what they were doing. Anyway, the people of Israel met Moses and Aaron, verse 20, well, they were standing as they came forth from Pharaoh. They said to them, The Eternal look upon you and judge this God you've told us about, because you have made our Savior to be abhorred in the eyes of Pharaoh and in the eyes of his servants to put a sword in their hand to slay us. You came here to kill us. Did that attitude surface later? Fast forward to the other side of the Red Sea. You brought us out here to kill us. Do people have trouble believing what they're told God is going to do? You bet they do. Anyway, Moses returned to the Eternal and said, Lord, wherefore have you so evil and treated this people? And why is it that you've sent me? Things are just getting worse. And Moses said that. Even he was having difficulty. <coughs> I can't speak. That's all right. Do it anyway. And then things get worse. He says, For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people. Neither have you delivered your people at all. You think Moses was going to have to learn who the true God was, and that he was going to have to then begin to trust and have faith in him, because he's not evidencing a whole lot of it yet. Then God told him, here's what I'll do with Pharaoh. With a strong hand, he'll let them go. And he said to him, I am the Lord, chapter 6, verse 2. And I have established a covenant, and I'm going to make sure that it happens. Verse 8, I am the Lord. And so Moses spoke to the children of Israel, but they hearkened not to Moses for anguish of spirit and for cruel bondage. Now, they needed some attitude adjustments. Did you ever wonder why when God started bringing the plagues, He let them come on Israel? as well as the Egyptians. Ultimately, he was to convince Pharaoh that he was God and he had better let them go, or just like his firstborn, he was a dead man. <clears throat> it took him a while to get that across. <clears throat> but you know what? 
he had to also convince the Israelites that he was God and that he would deliver them and that Pharaoh would let them go. Now, what had Moses threatened back there? God gave him two signs, the snake and the leprosy, and then told him, uh, I'll bring forth blood out of the water. Well, what happened? God started the plagues. What was the first one? And it came on Israel. Blood out of the water. Came on Egypt as well. Now, this lasted 430 years before deliverance finally came. <clears throat> and then that deliverance took a little while to get all set up and to take place. We, as a nation, have existed now for a little over 430 years since the first permanent colony was apparently established at Roanoke. And I do believe that that was the case, because if you wait till Jamestown 20 years later, uh, there's very few of us who would still be alive, and very few of the people who were part of Worldwide Church of God who would still be alive. Maybe not even 10% of them to come and build the temple. Probably not, because most were called back in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, and they were already most of them adults, and uh, they're getting old. And God did say there'd be some old ones around who would see the difference. So, we've been here, in my estimation now, part of two years past the 430. And he said at that point it would become, it would come, it was close, it was near, some things had to happen to get it all set up. But once the 430 is done, once the 70 years of captivity uh, is done, and I think that probably ended about the same time in 2017, uh, we're into the second year part way since those events happened in the fall of 2017. <clears throat> so God has given us 430 years here plus a little bit, to live in this land. And since we arrived here, and as people kept coming, coming, coming from Europe and other places, we've lived through trials, troubles, tribulations, slavery. All kinds of things have happened in the last 430 years in this nation and even though God gave us a beautiful, beautiful place to live, which was far better than Mitzrayim or Egypt was, everything you could possibly want, as said about Ephraim there in Genesis 49, that we would have blessings that ran over the wall greater than anyone else. And I defy anybody to say that there's been any nation, any country, any piece of geography more blessed than this one. It has had everything we could possibly need except Chinese pottery. And we didn't need to import that. We had plenty of things here to make it out of before we decided to go that way. But that was a decision not out of need, but out of want to and greed. To make more money on plastic than you could make having Americans build it and sell it to you. So we denied 
the blessings that God gave us and started seeking them elsewhere and took on lovers around the world to trade with instead of being totally prosperous with what God had given us. So we've had 430 years with a great deal of war, with a lot of frustration, and it's just gotten worse and worse until today. We're at the very end of it, and we're about the place that the world was in Noah's day. God is about ready to wipe it out. But he tells us to come out of sin. Now, how hard is that? How long have you understood from these scriptures and from 1 Corinthians 5 and others that we're to purge out the old leaven, the sin, the vanity, the ego, the selfishness, the works of the flesh, and so on? How long have you known that? Why didn't you just get up and go out? Why do you still sin? Why do you still think thoughts that are ungodly? Why do you still do things that are ungodly? Why do we still treat people in an ungodly manner? You say, well, I'm not committing this sin, that sin, or the other sin. Well, are you loving your brother as much as yourself? Are you treating them with the kindness and love and gentleness that you like to be treated with? Hmm. Our sin becomes apparent then. When we don't love God above ourselves... And we still do things that are contrary to God because we love ourselves so much and we want to pamper and comfort and take care of our human desires. And then we look down upon our friends, our brothers, if they do something that we think is ungodly, instead of having mercy and forgiveness for them that we desire ourselves. Now, when you do something you think might be wrong or contrary to God, what do you do? You go to Him and you ask for mercy, for love, for forgiveness, that Christ's blood be shed in your behalf, and you entreat Him probably pretty emotionally sometimes to forgive you for whatever it is that you have done. Do you see someone else's mistake or sin or whatever you think happened and plead just as much for their forgiveness and God's mercy on them as you did for your own? And do you show mercy by not telling everybody you know what you think they did? Hmm. Do we love our neighbor as much as we love ourselves? All the evidence isn't in yet, but I think we can see there we probably have room to grow and there's still sin in our lives because lack of love becomes sin. An absence of love creates ambivalence or hate is what it does, or uncaring about the other person. And not only do we perhaps not care about them, but then we'll go to others and talk them down. There's, there's nothing in the Bible that allows that. Nothing. And yet we do it on a regular basis, almost daily it seems. Where does that come from? How hard was it to get Israel out of Egypt after 430 years? How hard is it here in the end time for God to begin to call a people and to get them out of sin 
to get them delivered from what we've been in in this world and in this nation, which has become modern Babylon and Egypt, representing sin. How hard was it? Well, we could go through the plagues here one at a time. Uh, boils came. That's one of the things that Satan put on Job, was boils. And it goes through. Stop the rain, frogs, flies, fleas, <laughs> lice, whatever. It went on and on and on. And after a while, God made a testimony to Israel that he was putting them above the Egyptians. He says, I've asked you to come out of that. And now I've let you be, and you said no. You said, we don't believe all this. And things are getting worse instead of better for us. So God said, okay, first few are on you. <laughs> They're on you. And he had to convince them first that they needed to come out. How much convincing does it take for you and me to give up this, that, or the other thing? What does it take? It's kind of slow, hard. Well, God speeded up the process here, didn't he? He sent a bunch of plagues on them, and it got their attention. And then he suddenly stopped plaguing them, and I'm sure that got their attention. Here, this is coming on them, but it didn't happen to us. Whoopee! Wow, they must have thought, this is wonderful. Look at those guys suffering, and it's not on us this time. And that kept happening. And finally, they got convinced that if they would kill a lamb and put the blood on their doorpost and have their shoes on their feet, their rod in their hand, their leavened bread tray, unleavened bread trays on their back and be ready to go when a cry comes, they might actually leave. They might actually start out of sin. Do something about it. But it took some convincing, just as it has with you and me. But it also took, I think, one last final act of God to truly convince them. When the firstborn were killed that night at midnight, and they heard the cry of all these Egyptians screaming and wailing and crying, that their firstborn, not only of their animals, but of their children, were dead. It impressed Pharaoh that his son was dead. And he said, get out of here. And you know what? Maybe at that moment the Israelites were more than happy to recognize that their children hadn't died. And so they grabbed that rod and that staff, and they already had their shoes on, and they got out of there fast as they could go. And the Egyptians were there saying, take this with you, take this with you, here's my jewelry, take it. Get out of here before we all die. And they said, yes, ma'am, thank you. Yes, ma'am, thank you. We're on our way. Then they walked for six days. Now, we've been through the trials, troubles, and tribulations of this life. And at some point, God calls us and says, get out of it. 
Some people were kind of glad to come out of it. Some kind of drugged their feet. Some took a long time. And we still have trouble getting out of it. We still cling to some of our old ways and our own thoughts, to our own desires of the past. We didn't do everything God said to do. So, then he started a church, and he says, well, I'll tell you what. I'll give you my spirit, and I'll help you come out of sin. What does Romans 13 and verse 4 say? Make no provision for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof. But we, being us, had certain things that we liked or certain things we didn't want to give up. Habits, uh, marriages, marriages we wanted to make with unconverted, uh, drugs, alcohol, cigarettes, you name it. We had things that we didn't want to give up. So we kind of hung on. And we just couldn't make that break in our minds and spirits to completely follow God's way. But we got self-righteous because we thought we were better than the Egyptians around us. And then God put a plague on the church, whereby he spiritually... Basically, has killed 90% of the church. Famine and pestilence, disease, and the sword on a spiritual level. People, a lot of them still alive, but they've given up or quit or in bad attitudes or whatever because they could not handle what was happening. It's just too much for them. But he says, tell you what, 10% of them are going to take me seriously And they're going to come on out. And they will do what I say. They will believe me. One out of ten will believe me. So here we are. And that's where we are. And pretty soon, he's going to start doing some signs and wonders within the church, just like he did back then. And will we believe those signs? What will they be like? Snake, leprosy, blood, will they be positive instead of negative? A stick turning into a snake, to me, is not a positive sign in a way. It's kind of a scary one. Sticking your hand in and having come out leprous or watching somebody else do that is kind of scary. It's not a positive sign. Turning on your faucet and having blood come out is kind of a negative way. I think God has it different now. Now, you can look at what happened to the church and say, boy, that looks negative. You know, people giving up, people quitting, people having bad attitudes, people hating each other. And on and on as it has gone, as God has sought to cure Laodiceanism and pride and vanity in us. So you might say, well, he said that would happen. Is that signs? It's a sign that he's doing exactly what he said he would do. Now, that has happened. He told us, I'm going to do this to you if you don't believe me. If you don't follow me. If you're not in your heart and mind committed and totally seeking me, 
These are the things that are going to come on you. And sure enough, they did. Now, I take that, even though those were terrible things that happened to us, to our friends and our relatives, and even to us. Because coming through all of this and beginning to see that he's talking about me, and I need to do something, was traumatic. And it's been hard. And it's been hard for us to try to regather ourselves and begin to truly see God where we've been sort of ho-hum and lukewarm about it. It's not been an easy situation, and the transition is not fully made to this day. Not fully made. But he says when he causes the positive examples to happen and draws his people together, they're going to rejoice, and instead of self-righteousness, it will be his righteousness there at the end of Isaiah 54. Not our self-righteousness. His righteousness. But it's going to take a lot before that begins to happen. Now, he brought all of Israel out and some mixed multitude with them. He got them out of there. Now, he also says that even though only 10% are going to believe him and respond to him, the other 90% are going to go into a spiritual wilderness of the beast and the false prophet, and that their carcasses will die in the tribulation. But hopefully they'll repent before they die and be spiritually saved out of it in the first resurrection. God says all Israel will be saved there in Romans 11, verse 26. Well, he has a plan. He's got this all worked out. A lot of grim stuff back then. A lot of grim stuff today. And yet, he's well prepared. He knows exactly what we have to go through to get us where he wants us to be. Didn't he pretty well have an idea with Job what he would have to go through to get him to understand what he needed him to understand? At first he limited Satan. And Satan said, Ah, yeah, but touch his body. Let him think he's going to die. He'll curse you. So God did it one step at a time. And then he had to listen to his friends for... No telling how long. And that wasn't much fun either. And then finally he got the picture. Now what's it going to take for 10% to get the picture? They walked and wandered on their way to the Red Sea for six days after that incredible deliverance. And then they get to the Red Sea, and here comes Pharaoh and all of his armies and chariots. And they think, well, looks like God had it in for us all along. Now we're going to die. Read Isaiah 7, 8, right through there. It talks about how the Assyrian is coming. And he will even try to torment us in the same way that he did in Egypt. But God will not allow it to happen. He says, don't fear the Assyrian. But it will look like it. 
And that's what it looked like when they got to the thread of the sea. And there were apparently mountains on both sides and the deep water in front. And the Pharaoh and the Egyptians coming from behind. They were in a box canyon. And here came the horses and swords. Now what? Yeah, this God that you told me his name's I am, he ain't. Pharaoh's coming to kill us now. They lost all faith and trust in God right there. What was it take coming at you before you lose all faith and trust in God and say, this is all baloney? Will it take the Assyrian coming in with a threat to do the same thing that they did to Israel? Take them into captivity? Slavery? Because that's what's going to happen to most of this nation. Going to go, well, only a third will go into captivity. A third will be killed with famine and pestilence, a third by the sword, and the other third go into captivity. And out of them, only a few will live until the millennium. But we've been told how to bypass that, how to get out of that. Now, God had told Moses and Aaron, and he told the Israelites, I'm going to save you. I'm going to take you into a land flowing with milk and honey, and everything will be great for you. When this is done, what did it take for them to forget that promise? One army coming up behind them is all it took. One trouble, one trial, one tribulation. That was a pretty substantial one, I agreed. But that's all it took. And they said, you brought us out here to die. You aren't God. Somebody's pulled a big joke on us, and now we're going to all die. And God inspired Moses at that point. And Moses said, Stand still and see the salvation of the eternal. Apparently at that point, Moses was the only Israelite who still believed in God. The only one. And he said... God's going to save us. Now, he may not have even known how. I don't recall God telling him, you're going to go to the Red Sea and I'm going to part the waters and you'll go through and then I'm going to drown the Egyptians. I don't remember him telling him that. But I don't have a perfect memory either. On the other hand, I doubt Moses knew what was going to happen. And God said, okay, you believe me, Moses. Now let's make believers out of the rest of them. So he says, I think raise your hands. And then the wind began to blow, and the water began to part. And first thing you know, there was land. And then it blew so hard it became dry enough to walk on. And a pillar of fire and cloud to hold the Pharaoh back. They were, they were right there. I mean, they saw them coming, and they didn't have early detection equipment in those days. It was their eyes and ears. So that army was right there. And God held them back till they walked through the water, a form of baptism, or a type of baptism. And when they got on the other side, Miriam believed again, and a lot of people believed again, and they all sang songs about Moses and God. And how great the deliverance was. Incredible 
multitude of voices raising themselves to God to proclaim His greatness. And then, the Egyptians were all drowned. I guess that's when they really began to sing. The danger was gone. God had delivered them. Now we believe in God. How long do we tend to believe in God? We see an answer. We see a healing. We see deliverance. We see a place in an accident where we really should have been killed and weren't. And a little time goes by, and we have another trial, another test, another problem. And it's so easy to forget that God did something for us last week or five years ago or 20 years ago, whenever it was. We, we tend to forget that and say, why isn't God answering me now? Why don't I get what I want now? And we forget past deliverances. We forget that we can truly trust Him to take care of us. How long did it take them? Here they were, singing songs of praise to God. And then they parted from the Red Sea and walked for a day and realized, we don't have any water. Immediately. You brought out here, us out here to kill us. You brought us out here to die. That was your plan all along. How fast did they forget an ocean opening up so they could walk through? You know, that's not, that doesn't happen every day, does it? That's a pretty rare occurrence. And to have an army just wiped out behind you? You'd think you'd remember that for a while. About 24 hours. It's all in the past. He, he did that elaborate thing with all those plagues back there and then us putting some blood on there and everybody's kid but ours died. And while we were going out, the Egyptians were stopping us and telling us, wait a minute, take my jewelry with you. Take my gold or my silver or whatever riches they had. And they got out of there. Six days later, trouble came. God took them out of it. No problem. 24 hours later, forgotten the whole thing because they were thirsty. Wow. Here in the end time, God told us in the Scriptures that He was going to spiritually destroy the church, that a third would die of famine and pestilence spiritually, not have the right food to eat. A third would die by the sword. And a spiritual sword of Satan and others came against us and destroyed a lot of people. <coughs> and many went back into the captivity of this world, like a sow to her wallow or a dog to his vomit. Right back into the world. And didn't really believe God. Now, they might have been in the back of their mind, but they decided they would do what they wanted to do instead of what God wanted them to do, right? So now you have it for how many people can look at that and see and understand that God did exactly what He said He would do. And that He killed Worldwide Church of God, Sardis, and it is dead. And only a very few names remain from it. 
the rest went right back into the world of evangelical, evangelical Protestantism. Keeping Christmas and Easter and all that stuff. Keeping Sunday. Completely forgot. All this stuff. Few still clinging to the Sabbath a little bit, but not too many. And that's about all. Just forgot. And they're dying spiritually. Now God says, I'm going to send signs and wonders. Now these are going to be positive things. He's going to do some healings. He says he'll heal the sick. The lame will walk. The blind will see. The deaf will hear. Incredible things that Christ did that the apostles did on the day of Pentecost and thereafter, where a man had been sitting there for all those years and suddenly jumped up and ran around and screamed and hollered God's name and thankful for his deliverance. Happened before, going to happen again. Now, what does it take to really believe that? Now, hasn't it already come to pass that all the things that I've been telling you would occur with the church for the last 23 years have happened. First of the church. It's been the message all along. It's going to happen to the church first, then it's going to happen to the world. There aren't very many people that heard that message, and most who did hear it didn't believe it. And now it has happened. All the things that the Bible shows that have been pointed out in all the prophecies in the book of Revelation have actually occurred to the church first. And here we sit. Almost nothing. Now, do we believe that? All you got to do is look around across this nation, around the world. It's happened, hasn't it? It's happened. Now, doesn't that kind of negative example give you hope and faith that if God was right about that stuff, He'd be right about the rest. The positive side. The blessings. It took a while to get Israel to, to grasp that. I'm going to take you to the promised land. Oh, well, we don't really believe you. Okay, I'll send you some plagues. Ooh, this is bad. Okay, now I'll just plague the Egyptians and leave you alone. Oh, this is good. If you'll eat a lamb and put some blood on the doorpost, all Egyptians firstborn are going to die. Ooh, that's bad. But yours are going to live. Oh, that's good. And then it happens, and they get all this jewelry and clothes and everything on their way out as they flee and pack their... Camels and mules and everything with all these goodies out of Egypt. Which they'd later turn into a golden calf. <laughs> you know, people are tough. It's hard to convince people. It's hard to get it across. So they walk a few days, cross the Red Sea. Well, they see Pharaoh coming. Oh, this is bad. Then the Red Sea parts. Oh, this is good. Let's sing songs about this. Then they get a little bit thirsty. Oh, this is bad. 
let's murmur and complain and gripe and groan and tell him, tell Moses and God, you brought us out here to die. It was your plan all along. Then water comes out of a rock. They have plenty to drink. Hey, this is good. But they stay that way. They keep going back and forth to this, back and forth. From being thankful for quail to saying, oh, that's not so good. Too many quail, I want something else. <laughs> or too much man, I want something else. Then they got the quail. God took care of them. And he finally said, you're all going to die in this wilderness. Because you won't believe me. And your children will go into the promised land instead. Oh, that's bad and good. Then they got to the Red Sea, I mean to the Jordan River. And guess what? Just like the Red Sea had backed up, it was flood time in the spring, and the Jordan River backed up. Way back. And they walked across on dry land into the promised land. Wow, this is great. And then they marched around Jericho and it all fell apart. One lady saved out of the whole thing for the kingdom of God. And they were in the promised land. Now he's told us, I'm going to destroy the church. Then I'm going to show some signs and I'm going to show some wonders like I did in Egypt. And 10% of the people are going to believe that I am God and that's where I am and that's what I'm doing. And they're going to come and build my temple and build Jerusalem and be a witness against this world at the end that sin is bad and that they've been delivered from it. And I will be with them and bless them and protect them when the rest of the world is being destroyed. What level of believability do you have? That since God did those negative things and destroyed the church like he said he would, Though he will turn around and bless, like he said he would, take us to the original promised land, bless us there, and then make it the headquarters of the kingdom of God forevermore. In the same spot. Do we believe it yet? Will we turn to him the way they did when they got on the other side of the Red Sea? And praise Him with song and dance and with all our heart. And to thank Him that He is going to deliver us. And then stand still and see the salvation of the eternal.